Great day, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Strategic Possibilities Show, where we discuss success and growth to help you launch potential in your personal and professional life. My name is Emmett Ferguson, and I am your host. And today, I am here with my friend Michael Stebbins, who I met at this amazing speakers event, where we were learning how to become better speakers and to build businesses around our brands and as speakers. And it was an amazing time in Arizona. If you ever have a chance, it was called World Class Speakers with a gentleman and woman named Kane and Alicia Minkus. They were fantastic trainers. And Michael, uh, today we're, Michael is a graduate in the study of philosophy. And we're just going to talk a little bit about philosophy today and where it all is and you know what it means for us today. So Michael, you did some consulting in philosophy uh, for businesses, what is you know what is your take on it? Where are the solutions that you can help provide with philosophy? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me today. I, I appreciate being here. It's nice to be here. Um, I think that uh, a preliminary understanding or a kind of superficial understanding of certain subjects is helpful for everyday experiences like business. Um, so, if we have an understanding um, of other people and their inner experience, in philosophy we, we talk about minds, right? Um, and uh, applying what we can learn from philosophy, um, in this case specifically the philosophy of mind, we can come to better understand our colleagues and understand the reasons that they do things, the motivations for them, their perspective on things, and therefore um, get along with them better and have a more harmonious and dynamic workplace. Great, and that sounds like a HR type of specialty. Is that the area that you were helping in, or was it more of? Well, um, I mean, it's not really HR because it doesn't have to do with the like the managing of HR law, of uh, labor law, and things like that. Um, basically, it has to do more with um, examining the circumstances that a business faces, uh, diagnosing problems. Um, developing solutions, and then if they, if the customer wants, the client wants, then um, helping to implement those solutions. Okay, and looking at philosophy, what would the difference between having a philosophy for business be versus if you just had a, a consulting gig with them? Um, uh, I'm not really sure I understand like because because you were just mentioning you know you were talking about uh, solutions for business mm-hmm. and you were talking about you know how to, how to have better communication mm-hmm. with employees and everything mm-hmm. so what would the main difference be where if you're consulting them through a philosophical approach versus just a general consulting, oh, okay. consulting I see. or so, strategic marketing whatever so I'm there are a lot of different approaches I mean uh, a lot of businesses are mostly concerned with uh, the bottom line right so how much money they can save by doing something or how little money they have to spend in order to accomplish a goal um, so a lot of uh, consulting will be primarily financially motivated um, where if you're utilizing a philosophical approach like I do, um, the the financial motivation is kind of subsidiary. It's not the primary motivation. Um, something like an application of culture or an application of philosophy would be used to uh, like change the culture of a business, right? And that, that uh, 
will have a monetary effect overall, but it may not be directly observable. So um, if a, a group of employees is unhappy, right, none of them like to work together, um, it's, it's difficult to, to quantify that in terms of how much money are you losing because nobody likes to work together, right? But if you, if you address the problem, if you try to help people work together better by applying ideas, concepts from the philosophy of mind, then um, you will be able to see changes that will affect your bottom line. Okay, so that is, so how would you, I mean, how would you even implement something like that? Because you mentioned that it was difficult to measure. So like, what's like an example of, you know, actually implementing it? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, basically it has a lot to do with training, training employees on um, concepts they're unfamiliar with. And that's another way that that a philosophical approach would be different from a a standard uh, consulting approach. So um, a lot of consultants will uh, apply things like, uh, lean management or uh, Six Sigma. And these are designed to um, eliminate waste and eliminate errors um, in processes. And so those um, don't really have to do with the, the culture of a workplace, right? They don't really have to do with the ideas that are going through people's heads as they do their jobs. You know, they might incorporate certain ideas like, um, uh, you know, standard deviations, how many errors we want within a certain lot of product, right? Um, but those are, they're kind of dry uh, concepts. They're kind of things you can't really um, bite into, right? I don't think anyone really is passionate about standard deviations, you know, but they might <laughs> right. be passionate about the minds of their colleagues or something like that. I see. Okay. So it takes, and you mentioned mind a few times. Uh, where would that be? differentiated between I guess and I studied you know some different elements of psychology Mm -hmm. where would the difference be between philosophy and psychology when it comes to the mind is there a difference actually um, so philosophy is is sometimes uh, referred to as the mother of the sciences so before there were sciences as we know it there was philosophy and this was developed by the Greeks and gradually this philosophical um, way of thinking developed into um, a different kind of thinking that allowed for the development of science. So um, thousands of years ago, before the development of science, uh, there was really only one explanation that people had to explain anything. And it was basically, it was the will of the gods, right? The gods made it happen, okay? And, And explanations didn't go any further beyond this, right? It was the gods wanted it to, ha- wanted it to happen, so it happened. Um, and, and this is why things like um, sacrifices and prayer developed, because if you think that everything is caused by a being that's similar to you, you want to try to have a relationship with that being so that you can try to affect that being's behavior, maybe give you a better harvest, maybe, you know, give you more rain so that you had the rivers are not dry. Um, and so gradually this kind of thinking changed from the idea that, well, maybe things aren't really caused by beings, by consciousnesses, by agents, right? Maybe they're just things bumping into each other, uh, mechanistic causation, right? Like, in, like we have in physics, right? Uh, physics doesn't talk about um, agents causing things. It just talks about one thing bumping into another and causing things to happen. So, so to get back to your question about psychology, Psychology is one of these developments, one of these outshoots of philosophy. It's a later development, much more recent development than, say, physics. Um, and there, 
there really isn't a solid distinction between philosophy and psychology. When, when you're doing uh, philosophy, I think that you have to do psychology. And when you're doing psychology, you have to do philosophy or, or you're not doing it properly. And so there's, there's no super clear distinction. It's more like a distinction between departments in the university, right? Um, they can talk about uh, the same object, the same topic, but they talk about it from different directions, say, using different concepts, using different vernacular. Interesting. Okay, so looking at philosophy, you said that it's uh, a, I guess, the, the mother of science. And, you know, just looking at science, like physics is physical, right? And you've got psychology, which is, you know, they take more and more effort to quantify psychology nowadays and all of that. What about in philosophy? How does how does how can philosophy become scientific, or does it just you know transition into the sciences and then that's where it becomes you know quantifiable, qualitative, and all that? That's a really good question. Um, actually, there's a lot of uh, philosophical work on this topic, and there's a lot of history to the question. Um, philosophers, uh, I think philosophers have always been kind of uh, self-conscious. We're we're a little defensive. Um, and that's because we, we really can't point to our subject matter, right? Um, if we talk to a physicist, he can say, well, anytime you see one thing bumping into another, anytime you see some, one thing causing another, that's physics, right? A chemist can show you chemical reactions. He can, he can show you great changes, right, he or she. Um, uh, and, you know, a psychologist can um, form theories and make predictions about people's behavior uh, to explain it, right? Or, like I said, predict it. Um, but the thing is, is that philosophy can never be a science purely because of the nature of what it is. Um, so, uh, this, this self-consciousness that philosophers, um, have always had has been evinced in the fact that they've tried to make philosophy into a science. And there was actually a movement called the, the positivist movement in the early 20th century, um, where they tried to eliminate everything from philosophy that wasn't scientific, that wasn't observable, quantifiable, uh, hard in a sense. Um, and the fact is they failed. Um, the fact is, is that there are concepts that we, it seems that we cannot eliminate from our thinking and from the way we view the world, that they're one, they're not entirely physical. So um, I mentioned earlier the concept of function. Um, I think before we started recording, um, the concept of function it, it relates to a set of relations in the world, but a function itself is not a physical object, right? My heart has a function, but you won't find it in my heart. Does that make sense? Right. So, so the things that, that philosophy investigates are, are more conceptual. They're more rational rather than physical or causal. So um, you can think of like philosophy as a kind of like breeding ground for sciences. It's, it's a, a preliminary stage of thinking before we've found um, quantifiable and concrete ways to make predictions and uh, create explanations. Okay, so I, I totally understand that in the sense that philosophy you mentioned, you know, right from the top is that philosophy can't be a science. So, you know, looking at where philosophy is today, 
where do you see philosophy adding the most value in modern times? Because, you know, we're talking about big data and we're talking about technology. Everybody wants things that are measurable. You want the ROI and all of that. Mm -hmm. So where do you think, where do you perceive philosophy bringing the most value today? Well, um, I think that's a, an interesting question also. Um, my, my first instinct is to say that philosophy is most useful in... Uh, and in boundary areas, in areas of conflict, right, in um, borderline cases. So in order to, to quantify things, in order to get the kind of hard and rigid measurements that we want, the scientific measurements that we want, um, there need to be definitions, right? We need to have um, standards or criteria of how do we know that we've got the thing we're talking about, right? And so, um, what do you mean by that? How do we know? Okay, we've got so what we're talking about. Um, okay, we we have an idea of an electron, right? Um, ha we have an idea of an electron. Um, so, how do we know when we've got an electron, right? How do we know when we're dealing with an electron? Well, it's a, a subatomic particle with a certain negative charge and a certain mass, and you know, uh, you can find them orbiting atomic nuclei. Um, so it's it's those properties. It's it's a, a set of properties that basically constitutes our concept of what an electron is. Um, it's when those definitions are established that that a science starts to gain traction. So uh, when we're when a science is forming in in a philosophical sense, um, what what people are trying to do is they're trying to come up with. Uh, quantifiable, operationalizable definitions for the phenomena that they're concerned with. So it's when we actually have good definitions, or at least workable definitions, and, and I'll make that distinction, good is different than workable, um, that we are able to start creating a new science, right? So when, um, you know, psychologists uh, are able to start measuring things like nerve conduction velocity or the speed of reflexes or you know how people act in groups or whatever um, then that's when a science really takes off and is able to make progress and give us insights into things we didn't know before and um, philosophy itself doesn't really deal in those concrete things philosophy is more like the process to try to get to those con concrete things well, yeah, I've never looked at philosophy in that way. So that's that's really interesting. And, you know, what you made me think of is technology today. And, you know, even though there's a science to things like popular trends, like artificial intelligence, there could probably be also a lot of philosophy involved in helping to develop that or even virtual reality or any of these other big trends that are happening, including uh cryptocurrencies and mm -hmm. things like that. Yeah. So it's interesting that you're saying that because yeah. there's so many new developments and it makes me wonder like, oh, what's the science behind it? But you know, maybe it's still developing so there isn't mm -hmm. necessarily one. Yeah, so for example, um, in the philosophy of artificial intelligence, so any topic you can think of, there's, um, there's probably a philosophy of it. Um, but in the philosophy of artificial intelligence, uh, one of the primary questions is, well, what is intelligence? How do we know when we're dealing with intelligence? And unless we have uh, an operationalizable definition, we'll, we'll just be spinning our wheels no matter what we do, right? It, an artificial intelligence could be sitting right in front of us, and if we don't have the standards by which to judge 
uh, to confirm whether or not we're dealing with an artificial intelligence, we will never know. Okay. And do you think that philosophers in general uh, have the the skill to be able to apply it to all the sciences or do you think it's more of something like you know if you want to specialize in art philosophy for artificial intelligence you should study artificial intelligence and then learn a little bit about philosophy um well i think that if if your goal is to be a philosopher if your goal is to understand the truth then you should start with philosophy um it takes a lot of years, it takes a lot of reason, uh, reading, it takes a lot of reasoning, it takes a lot of discussion in order to even get a feel for what good philosophy is, to even recognize it one, when you're reading it. So I, I got, I've got two questions from that is, okay. what do you mean by truth? And what do you mean by, I mean, what's an example of good philosophy? I mean, obviously, you know, we could pull from history and just mm. say, oh, well, you know, throughout any of the famous names, Plato, Socrates, Galileo, all those mm-hmm. gentlemen. Um, but yeah, those two questions. Okay. So uh, your first question is, what is truth? Yeah. What do you mean by truth? I so mean, that's, given... that's uh, itself a philosophical question. And okay. it's actually good. one that I think is... Um, crucial to all of philosophy. The interesting thing is, uh, uh, let me say a little bit about the philosophical discipline. Um, Before the modern era, it was characteristic of philosophers to come up with an entire philosophical system, right? To kind of create their picture of the world in their philosophical terms. Um, And the more more rich and robust and thick and complete, the better. Um, but this kind of fell out of fashion the more philosophy grew as a discipline, right? The more there is to know, the less of the total you're able to learn in a lifetime, right? So when academic philosophy was developed at the beginning of the 20th century, um, people started to specialize. And so since then, for over 100 years, specialization has been the name of the game, really. So um, philosophers today aren't really encouraged to have uh, broad areas of interest. They're actually more encouraged to uh, have very narrow focuses and specialties. Um, I happen to disagree with this approach. Um, I don't think that this approach is worthwhile, and I also don't like how it kind of implicitly ignores any philosophical uh, theories relation to truth. So if you're if you're uh, specializing in let's say artificial intelligence, right? Um, you read everything on the philosophy of artificial intelligence. You read everything related to the philosophy of art. You read everything in artificial intelligence itself, right? Um, but let's say you come up with your theory of artificial intelligence, what it means, uh, how you do it, what constitutes it, whatever. Okay. The question is, how do you know? Or how do you know what it means for your theory to be true? So let's say I create my theory and I say, I argue, it's true, right? This is the truth of artificial intelligence. Okay, what does that mean if I don't also have a theory of truth, right? Mm -hmm. How clear have I made myself if I don't also get down to the nitty gritty about what truth means? And there's there's, uh, different approaches. There's about four major approaches to the theory of truth. And I'm partial to what's known as the pragmatic theory or the pragmatic approach. Okay, interesting. And just real quick, what's an example of a good philosophy? Because, and and just, you know, coming from my perspective, someone that didn't study uh, philosophy in college and maybe the audience who hasn't studied philosophy, you know, we hear about like Socrates and Plato and then, Mm -hmm. you know, 
back then, if we look at a perspective of that time, people, you know, might have looked at them and been like, you know, you're nuts, right? So how do we as people today know the difference between good philosophy versus bad philosophy? And not not necessarily bad <laughs> philosophy, but people who are thinking that they're doing philosophy, whereas they're just, you know, talking yeah. about their own perspective. Do you know what okay. I mean? Yeah, I, I kind of think I see two different uh, questions you're asking. Um, one is, how do you know someone is a serious philosopher? Um, and another is, how do you know what good philosophy is? So sure, yeah. um, my... My answer to the first question, how do you know someone is a, a good or serious philosopher, would be, um, do they have a healthy skepticism? Do they have a healthy skepticism about their own ideas? Okay, they, this kind of person um, will tell you all about their ideas all night long and give you all the reasons and, all, and argue against all the counter arguments that they can think of. And, but then at the end, they'll still say, well, I don't really know for sure. I mean, this is, this is my take on it. This is all the arguments and evidence that I've gathered. These are, this is why I think I'm right, but I could still be wrong. The bad philosopher says, no, this is it. This is the truth. I'm right. There's no way I'm wrong. You guys are retarded. You guys need to shut up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so that's how you know someone is a serious philosopher. If they're, if they're healthily skeptical of any and all ideas, even the ones that they are most familiar with and treasure most. You know, that made me think of how being a philosopher can be difficult in these times uh, specifically because you know especially when you're working in like the business world or you know you're in personal development or growth there needs to be a level of you know certainty in what you're presenting Mm. so just thinking you know career-wise for philosophers how can you you know be good and have a good philosophy and approach it right, but also be able to make a career out of it or make like a healthy living and discussion instead of, you know, getting stuck in that everlasting hole of maybe I don't know. <laughs> does, does that make sense? I mean, um, well, you're asking about making a living as a philosopher, you know, making a living, but also living a life where you do accept some things as like, okay, that's oh, a fact. I see. And not just being, okay, well, maybe okay. I might be wrong or maybe this okay. might not be true. So, so how, does, how does this healthy skepticism I'm talking about not devolve into like a vicious cycle of you, you can't believe or trust anything? Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Okay, yes. Yes. So, um, I, I mean, the easiest way to explain it for me is just to, to basically always keep close to mind that we're just monkeys using concepts, uh, you know, apes to be exact, but I like to say monkeys, it sounds better. Um, so uh, we're just tool users, right? We, we make and use tools to try to get done what we want to get done. And philosophy is no different. Any, any ideas, any concepts, any language, any systems, any theories, it's all just tools to try to get what we want. Um, and so you can use these tools, right? You can um, have a, a, a toolbox, right? A collection of ideas that you use to navigate the world. Um, but you never have to say to yourself, this is the best tool for this job. This is the absolute perfect tool. It's just a tool. If you had a hammer, you wouldn't say, wow, 
this is the most perfect hammer in the world, right? There's no way you could know that. Uh, and also, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so it's it's just maintaining that idea that that no matter what you believe in, if you believe in, you know, people are passionate about the Constitution or people are passionate about the Bible or people are passionate about other religious scriptures or other, you know, important documents or ideas, um, it's all just tools. And when you attach yourself too much to tools, I think that um, it's a kind of mistake being made, like the, the kind of mistake that's made when people love objects, right? Um, it's a it's a kind of category mistake. It's an improper use of your your time and energy and focus. Um, but uh, I didn't answer the the second question, um, which was how do you recognize good philosophy? Um, and to answer that question, I think it's um, uh, an easy analogy is to talk about or think about the difference between crystals and clouds. Okay, so in a crystal every atom is locked in a, a specific structure, a specific orientation, right? So it has a, a definite um, organization to it, right? Clouds are completely different. They're just, you know, uh, uh, blobs of, of interacting water molecules, right? Um, that aren't really held together by anything. And they're constantly changing, constantly shifting, and they can, you know, dissolve at any moment. So when you come across ideas, especially philosophical ideas, that uh, remind you more of crystals. They're hard, they're rigid, they're inflexible, they lack variation, they lack variety, right? When, when you lack these kind of organic properties um, in ideas, then you start to see that they don't really match up to life. They don't really help you navigate the world because there's not a kind of correspondence between what the world is like and the, what the ideas that you're using are like. So um, ideas or, or ways of thinking that say uh, make more make references that are more uh, general, like for the most part, in general, um, are usually ideas that are closer to reality and therefore more useful. So, um, for example, um, yeah, I was a little lost there because you mentioned the more general. Are you saying the more general that an idea is, the more related to? No, not necessarily. So it it has to do with um, change and variation. Okay, so so the nature of the universe is change. Things are constantly changing, right? Nothing, right. Nothing ever stays the same, um, and so ideas that are more adaptive, more changeable, right? Less permanent are the better ideas. The ones that say, no, this is the way it is now and forever, and this is the way it has to be, those are the worst ideas. That's the how you tell something is bad philosophy. When it's only one way, when it won't change, when there's only one perspective to look at, that's how you know it's bad philosophy. Got it. Okay, so here's a, here's a question to challenge the the philosophy muscles mm -hmm. so what what about the case of going down the road of science looking at science you had mentioned that if things are too much like a crystal that becomes like a in a sense a bad philosophy if mm -hmm. it's only one way if it's mm -hmm. if some people are saying that this is only you know the only thing mm -hmm. so looking at science you know would you say and just thinking philosophically you know scientific law is that bad philosophy or I see what you're saying. okay yeah that's that's a really interesting question um, so there's there's different answers to this question the first one is um, 
there could very well be alternative sciences that are different from the sciences we use, but that are equally valid. So in the same way that um, starting from the Greeks, mathematicians believed that there was only one valid geometry, right? Euclidean geometry, which has to do with um, lines and angles on a flat plane. But uh, in the, I think it was the 19th or 20th century, um, two more forms of geometry were discovered. There's um, hyperbolic geometry and um, parabolic geometry. Yeah, hyperbolic and parabolic geometry. So um, one has to do with the uh, nature or the, the way uh, lines and angles interact on a sphere, right? So it's a curved space, right, rather than a flat space. And the laws of geometry are different. So for example, um, what is it? Parallel lines uh, on a sphere will eventually converge. And that violates one of the laws of geometry in Euclidean geometry, right? Parallel lines will never converge. Um, so in the same way, ideas could theoretically be organized in a different way, but still come out with the same results. And this is really difficult to think about if you don't have uh, clear examples. But imagine if um, aliens came to Earth, right, on their spaceship. Um, do you think that their physics would be exactly like ours? Probably not, right? Uh, you know, if, I would think that their physics are like ours in the sense that, you know, they're using the same physics, the same space that we are. It's just that they know how to use things better than we do. So would their physics be more advanced? I wouldn't say so much their physics as much as their technology is more capable of utilizing more than we might know of. Okay. Assuming the aliens visited us. Okay. So, so let's, let's combine my two examples about uh, aliens and geometry. So let's say we um, tried to uh, get to the moon using Euclidean geometry. I don't think you could, but let's just say we tried. Okay, hypothetically. Hypothetically. Um, and then let's say that aliens reached the moon using uh, non-Euclidean geometry, right? There's... There's nothing inconsistent or, or illogical about using two different methods to do the same thing. Um, and, the, and this leads into the second answer uh, to my question, and, or to the question, and that's basically that when you understand, um, at least from the pragmatic perspective, when you understand the nature of truth, you understand that any um, linguistic description of a physical phenomena, even though it works for us, is like comparing apples and oranges. So um, to say that our physical theories um, somehow correspond or represent uh, mind-independent facts in the world is to compare apples and oranges. So our, our physics, the, the writing, the equations, the ideas that go into our physics, right? That is not the physical phenomena. That is a tool we use to understand the physical phenomena. So in the same way that um, Galileo used a telescope to look at the moon and look at Saturn and things like that, um, the math that we use is just a lens that we use to see the world. And there's no reason why another mathematics couldn't work just as well. I, I'm getting you. So what I took away from that is essentially, you know, that tool example, 
if you know you need to put a nail into wood, you can either use a hammer or you can use a really heavy wrench. Right. And uh, the idea that you know if you got to put somebody in a space, you can find a way to you know use elastic energy if you were able to hypothetically come up with that, or you can use rocket fuel. Mm-hmm. And in another way, just because one law of science says to conserve energy, it doesn't mean that necessarily it can't be something else to conserve energy as well. That's what I'm getting. Yeah. So um, imagine uh, you have a bunch of colored blocks, right? And you make a pyramid with the colored blocks. They're all different colors. Um, you could have one arrangement of colors with the uh, to form the pyramid, right? Or you could have another. So as long as... Um, as long as observable changes are responded to in a way that gets you closer to your goal, that's all that matters. And the the math, the language, the, the work that we do with concepts doesn't really matter how it works on the inside as long as it gets us what we want. Um, so the idea that scientists think that they're getting closer to the truth. Um, the On my pragmatic view, um, the truth is basically that reality is ineffable so think about this microphone right um, mm-hmm. we can think about this microphone as a, a, a fact of nature right this this microphone exists it's a physical object but when we start talking about it I'm just making noises out of my face right right and you're connecting these noises that I'm making out of my face to objects in the world but there's actually no necessary connection between the noises I'm making out of my face and these objects and we know that because other languages exist right I'm not speaking Mandarin, I'm not speaking Cantonese, I'm not speaking Korean, and it's um, the, the, what connects those sounds, those different groups of sounds, with objects in the world is merely competence. The fact that you know how to do it. You've been taught over years of experience and observation how to connect these random sounds with things in the world. And so when scientists think that they're getting closer to the truth by, say, discovering the Higgs boson or things like that. There's a sense in which they're not getting any closer to the truth because the truth isn't something that can be put into words, right? So um, the, the discovery of the Higgs field, we can talk about that. But all our talk amounts to is whether or not we know what to do in this right situation, whether or not our actions get us what we want. Okay, think of it, think of, imagine everyone was deaf and um, mute, right? How would you know that you that I understood you if if you wanted something, right? You would know because I did the right thing in the right situation. That's all our ideas and concepts and words and math comes down to. Did you do the right thing in the right situation? And that can include making more noises with my mouth. It can include thinking concepts in my mind. Okay, when you say picture a green apple. Right? Okay, I can do that in my mind. But the sound you're making green apple has no necessary connection to the things we think of as green apples. Mm-hmm. So no physics, no math, no science, no writing or language has a necessary concrete connection with the physical world. And that means it's always going to fall short. There's always going to be something wrong about it. Because language is not the kind of thing that, in this sense, can be right. Okay. Lost me a little bit there. Okay. But considering what you were were just mentioning, 
is there a difference between and, and I got some of it, you know, I wasn't lost completely, um, but just in and that was a complicated, you know, idea mm-hmm, mm-hmm. being presented. But is there a difference between truth and reality? Um, you know, I actually haven't done any work on the concept of reality. I've done work on the concept of truth. I've done work on the concept of fact, <laughs> but not reality itself. Um, well, like, what do you think? I mean, just coming up with it right now, what do you? Uh, well, okay, if we're, there's different ways to think about it. So how do you want to define reality? Do you want to define reality as everything that exists or everything that could exist or everything that has existed? Or do you want to talk about something like the laws of physics, right? The, the principles that seem to make all things possible. So, and then there's, there's other problems like, okay, say you want to talk about everything that exists. Okay. Well, do minds exist? Okay. But in order to answer the question, do minds exist? What does existence mean? Right? So Plato, Plato talked about this. He said that for something to exist, it either has to be uh, able to be capable of acting or being acted upon. So basically it has to make a difference in the world. Um, if you think about it this way, ideas make a difference. And so ideas exist, even though they're not physical objects per se, they're processes. Um, and the, the part of philosophy that is concerned with reality and questions of reality and existence and being is called metaphysics. And a branch of metaphysics is ontology. And ontology is basically just a list of what exists, what kinds of things exist. What is the fewest number of entities you have to posit in order to explain everything in the universe? That can be quite a complex idea. Wow. Explaining everything in the universe. Yeah. So like just that's like Stephen Hawking's job, right? Yeah. Just like scientists want to explain everything in terms of atoms or the motion of energy. Right. So all of all of the universe, everything observable is reduced down a funnel into just energy and motion. Yeah, absolutely. So we've looked at some of the really high level concepts within philosophy, and we've also looked at, you know, even the technicalities of what does truth mean? Mm-hmm. You know, what is, how is, how is it applied in certain areas? As you mentioned, with like different tools in science. So, what are some of the most practical applications that we see on a daily basis? Besides, you know, evolving into science. Um, and to preface this using the example of, you know, how are you using that. Mm. What other applications do you think we see in our regular lives? Um, honestly, I think that the, the biggest um, application of philosophy is something that almost everyone utilizes, and that would be the application of what's called epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge and our modes of knowledge and how we come to attain knowledge and whether or not knowledge is possible. Um, and so basically this is uh, when we detect bullshit, right? How, how do we detect bullshit? How do we know when we're hearing something that couldn't possibly be the case, right? Um, we, we utilize our experience. We utilize things that um, we are familiar with and we make inferences. We extrapolate to cases that are less familiar, right? But as you get older, you, you get a feel for uh, what's possible in the world, right? 
Um, and I mean this in kind of a, a common sense, everyday sense, not, not in the way a physicist knows what's possible in the world. It's, um, it's kind of just a, a kind of maturity, right? Um, and whether or not we know it, when, when we're making judgments about what is reasonable or what is true or what we should believe, we're doing philosophy, we're doing epistemology because we have to set standards for ourselves. Um, to judge whether or not this particular case is a good one, whether or not I should believe it, whether or not I think it's true, whether or not it's actually a piece of knowledge, or whether or not uh, I'm mistaken or being deceived, right? Because everyone makes mistakes and everyone can be deceived. And, um, you know, depending on your experience, depending on where you live, more people are trying to deceive you than others in certain places. Um, mm -hmm. The Watching television, people are trying to deceive you all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's important to be able to um, apply principles about what really constitutes knowledge. How can I really know something? How do I know that's true? Um, especially to combat things like fake news and propaganda, right? Um, this is something that's been uh, become a big topic uh, over the past few years with um, our current administration. And so I think the people that are able to apply these um, ideas about what actually constitute, constitutes knowledge and what they can know, right? Um, it's always interesting to me when people make claims, whether you know in the media or in person or whatever, about things they couldn't possibly know, right? They say, oh, X is true, and you think about it for a second, and they have no means to have attained that knowledge, right? Uh, we're human beings, we're finite animals, and everything that we do has a means by which we do it, right? And if we come to know something, then there's always a means by which we came to know it. And oftentimes people make claims about things they have no means to have attained, you know? Right on, right on. And yeah, and I've heard of that idea today recently, similar to how people just put, as you were mentioning, they put out like a random statistic mm -hmm. and it's like, how do you even measure that? Mm -hmm. You know, did you get everybody, every homeowner that has a leaky faucet and did you contact them? Mm -hmm. You know, how did you even come across? That's yeah. just an example. I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. But. And in, in cases like that, um, going back to the application of philosophy and definitions, um, definitions are extremely important for scientific studies, right? Um, if you're trying to measure a phenomenon, you have to have some standard, some criteria to know when you're dealing with that phenomenon. And, and it's very possible and it often happens that definitions are bad. And so when, when studies are made, the, the results that are presented are skewed or misleading or just downright false. So it sounds like in this sense that philosophy is really applicable in your daily life in helping, as you mentioned, to, you know, get rid of or, or detect BS. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a great way. So, you know, I think on one level, people have a belief that, you know, they have their own sense of what is BS, right? They mm -hmm. might say, oh, well, you know, I just don't get this the, the right vibe from this person. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they know a fact and that fact is completely you know, misinterpreted, presented mm -hmm. on TV. Mm -hmm. So instead of just thinking about it from our senses, uh, I guess uh, intellectually, just think about it intellectually. What are some methods that you would you would advise people to apply in order to take a smarter approach to interpreting BS? Mm -hmm. I think that's that's a great question because. Um, 
even though a lot of times people are are maybe either explicitly or implicitly applying a standard to judge whether or not something is true or knowledge, um, they're bad standards a lot of the time, right? And so, I mean, your your question relates to the question: How do you tell what's a good standard of knowledge? How do you how do you do epistemology, um, in a sense? And um, one of the things that comes to mind, one of the tools that's um, a favorite of philosophers actually is what's called a counterexample. And so, you in taking or creating a counterexample, you try and um, formalize the standard that you're applying to the specific situation. So, if if I meet someone and I form the belief that they're a bad person, right? Okay, I can reflect on this. All right, what standard did I use? Why why did I come to the belief that they're a bad person? And then I, I realize, oh well. Um, he gave me a weird feeling when I shook his hand, right? Um, okay, then you take this standard or, and that you applied in the specific situation, and then you generalize it. You say, okay, someone shook my hand and it made me feel bad, and I now think they're a bad person. And you apply this to a random case, right? So you think, okay, if I met, any time I meet, a person and shake their hand and it gives me a bad feeling does that mean they're a bad person and the answer is obviously no because I could have gotten a bad feeling for any number of reasons it could have had nothing to do with the person's hand I was shaking and so when you uh, analyze the the standards that are being applied when you take them out of their context and put them into um, a less uh, heated or less uh, volatile context a more neutral context to think about so things are calmer you can think through these things better and then realize that the standard that was being applied isn't a very good one and doesn't hold through all cases. Awesome. So so essentially looking at your reasoning and giving it a question of, you know, what's true about that standard that you're holding in Mm -hmm, a way. mm -hmm. And... Is the standard a good one? Yeah. Okay. So think about that and... I guess this would be a good que- question to wrap up with is then at what point do you separate trusting your gut versus applying, you know, the only a factual counterexample standard? I think What's uh, your take on that? I think it has to do with two factors. I think it has to do with how much time you have and what's on the line. So, are there is there something at stake? Uh, are you going to be in a potentially dangerous situation? Um, if I meet someone and I automatically get a bad feeling like they might be dangerous or something like that, um, and they might be dangerous very soon, then um, I have less time to reflect on my standards. And it's usually better, and because there's something on the line, because there's something at stake, my safety, right? Then it's usually not as important to try and do epistemology in those moments, right? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's more important to do epistemology when um, you know your life isn't at stake, your safety isn't uh, part of the issue, and you have the actual time to reflect and make a decision. So um, I always uh, tell people that my first step in trying to solve a problem or address a situation is gather information if there's time. If there's not time, you may just have to act. I like that. So essentially, trust your gut if you don't have much time. Yeah, exactly. And you know when you do have time and there's 
potential relationships on the line or potential friendships, anything else like that that might be more longer term mm-hmm. to ask yourself those questions and to not discount some an idea or somebody just because of a gut feeling right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's great. That's a great approach. Awesome. Well, any uh, final things to wrap up for the audience in terms of philosophy, you know, final um, thoughts that came about? Uh, no, I just had a great time and I thought your questions were excellent. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, everybody, that was a Michael Stebbins and uh, yeah, keep an eye out for him. He loves philosophy and he does consulting and so many great things uh do you have like a website right now that um actually it's under construction at the moment okay cool and what's that gonna be it's going to be uh pragma conceptual llc.com no way pragma conceptual.com cool how do you spell that uh p-r-a-g-m-a-c-o-n-c-e-p-t-u-a-l llc uh, actually, the LLC is not on the website, but it is an LLC. Yeah. Okay, so that's just pragmaconceptual.com. That's right. Awesome. Fantastic. And that's going to be your consulting yes, yes. website. Yeah. Fantastic, Michael. Well, thanks so much for you know stopping by and doing this podcast with me. And for the audience, you know, this philosophy is such a great, uh, great like body of knowledge and just... Yeah, great tradition. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, I hope you got a lot out of this episode and, you know, be sure to apply it in your own daily life. All right, thank you. All right, have a good day, everybody.